NFL Week 15 has a few games to keep an eye on as playoff teams sign reinforcements for the stretch run. Carlos Correa signs the fourth largest contract in the history of Major League Baseball. Is he worth it? Alex Ovechkin joins the 800 Gold Club with the two greatest players in NHL history. Why we need to appreciate this milestone. The latest in the association as the Lakers and Celtics played an OT thriller. The World Cup final is set as Argentina and France will battle for a title. Are you ready for another jam-packed, fast-paced sports podcast party? It's all coming up, but first, this message. What has happened to my good people? Thank you so much for passing by to listen to me wax poetic as I talk about anything and everything that's happening in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm on all available platforms. You can also go to the website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc., All I want to do is increase the visibility of this podcast, so please, throw me a few stars, write a review, it will go a long way into getting the word out, even take a screenshot, send it to your friends, send it to me on social media, I'm more than happy, willing, able, and open to get your feedback on what it is that you enjoy most about the J Reels Podcast. So with that being said, let's hit it, the J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Rose Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, Michael? People, greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic and excellent spirits. Smack dab in the middle of December as we inch closer to Christmas. I'll make my list, check it twice, trying to find out who's naughty or nice in the sports landscape as I get into all that's going on as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle or even as early as this past Monday, I welcome you guys and gals back. Quite a bit to get into here as we trudge along. Getting closer to the start of winter, the official start, and it's been a little bit chilly here in the Northeast, so I wonder if Old Man Winter is making an early visit and looking to really stick around here over the course of the next three months. Hopefully that's not the case, and I understand it's winter, it's going to be cold, it's going to be cloudy like it is today, some rain is expected, and actually some storms, but with all that being said, with everything that's on the horizon, of course, not only just Christmas, but New Year's. There is still a lot to be ironed out here, not only in the sports world, but even with our own lives. So make sure we get everything in order so we can bust through that 2023 door like gangbusters. But with that being said, the NFL season now is in the home stretch, the final four games. There are a lot of playoff possibilities, even though there has not been a lot of intrigue as we look at the first 13 games, not necessarily 13 weeks because we are already in the 15th week. I'm sure... There are a lot of people that are salivating and certainly welcoming with open arms these final four weeks to see what is going to transpire. And that's why we're sports fans, of course. That's why we follow the sports that we love, and particularly the NFLs. We all know it's 
reigns supreme and it's king when it comes to the major sports and pretty much any sport. And that includes the World Cup because despite the fact that there are soccer fans all over the world and everybody's anticipating the final to see whether or not France is going to repeat as World Cup champions. And then you have Argentina with Lionel Messi and we'll get to that later on. But we all know that for the fantasy football player, for the gambler, for just the NFL football fan, this is the final month, this is crunch time, and this is why we watch and see how it's all going to unfold. And you have a lot of interesting games here on the slate when it comes to the NFL, because remember, you have a Thursday night game, as we've seen throughout the course of the season, you have San Francisco going up the coast to play Seattle, it's a do-or-die game, I think, for Seattle, because their schedule gets tricky, not only with this game here, division game at home, you would think that they will be competitive, you think that, who knows, maybe they'll get off to a good start, Brock Purdy is due to have a bad game, not that he's had great games, but the Seahawks knowing that they have a trip to Kansas City next week, not going to be easy, they do host the Jets, another game not going to be easy, although we'll see where the Jets stand at that point, as they have a couple of big games on the horizon, the Lions come into their building this week, short week for them, where Jacksonville invades MetLife a week from today, and then the final game of the season, the Seahawks will host the Rams, so if they could get past these two games, and of course one game at a time, if they happen to win at home against the Niners tonight, and the Niners are due to lose, so who knows, maybe they'll throw a clunker up in the Pacific Northwest, but that's going to kick off this week with three games on Saturday, India at Minnesota, eh, nothing to really scream at, although Minnesota has to get back on the beam after that pathetic performance against the Lions on Sunday. The middle game is Baltimore at Cleveland. You may have Anthony Brown, the third stringer, start for the Ravens, and currently with them being in first place, having that slight edge over the Bengals, and wanting to keep pace to see if they could get a three seed and maybe even go higher, depending on what happens in Buffalo, which is the Saturday night game where Miami will trek up to Western New York and finish this three-game road trip that started in San Francisco. We saw there what happened against the Niners and then last Sunday night against the Chargers and how that played out. And with the Dolphins knowing that this is a must-win for them, despite the schedule lighting up a little bit where they'll host the Packers on Christmas Day, then they have to go to New England before hosting the Jets at the end of the year. So those three games on Saturday all have playoff implications. Lesser one for the Vikings because they are playing the Colts. And although they got to stay ahead of the Niners, as we talked about on Monday when it comes to the two seed. So it's going to be interesting to see how the Vikings will go into that game knowing that San Francisco plays tonight. And if they lose, they could take a two-game advantage in the NFC and maybe not have to worry about having the Niners nipping on their heels. But of course, if the Niners do win, then all the pressure's on them to beat Indianapolis. And as we know, Indianapolis is roadkill. Then you have the games on Sunday where the schedule, you do have a few games that we can look at and say, all right, let's see where we could go as far as from 1 o'clock, 425, and 8.20 to wrap up your day. We know the Sunday night game was flexed out where you'll have the... New York Giants go up against the Washington Commanders. Understood, not a sexy game, not a matchup that everybody's going to run to the sets to watch Tariqo and Collinsworth. But this is a game where if the Commanders win, they'll put themselves in good stead to 
make it to the NFC playoff picture where the Giants will still have a good shot and a lot will depend on what's going to happen tonight if Seattle wins or loses. So this is a huge game and that's the only reason why it was flexed to that 820 slot. We know New York is going to bring eyeballs to the sets. D.C., nation's capital, two big markets. So obviously that's why that game was catapulted to the 820 time slot and I believe Patriots-Raiders was dropped down to the 425 or 405 as I take a look at the schedule. But with Sunday, 1 o'clock, the only games I think you could really look at, they have playoff implications to some degree, but you don't have the one sexy matchup that you could say, aha, that's the one game I got to pay attention to, let's say come 1 o'clock. And as we look at that, Dallas at Jacksonville, In the 1 o'clock window, to me, that's probably the most intriguing game because you have Jacksonville, who all of a sudden has now thrusted themselves in a possible AFC South scenario by beating Tennessee the other day, and they do play Tennessee at home to conclude the season. They're only two games behind them. Now, they can't trip up the rest of the way. We understand Tennessee's the type of team that they're Jekyll and Hyde one week to the next. You never know what you're going to get. Tennessee does have an interesting matchup, but that's in the 4 o'clock window as I'll get to in a minute. But Jacksonville, now they may start believing. I'm sure Coach Doug Peterson, and even with Trevor Lawrence and how he's played over the last couple of weeks, they're going to start to believe, even with a very solid opponent in the Cowboys coming into their building. But all the hope right now in Jacksonville is thinking, hey, we have an outside shot to still be a part of this thing and maybe even be relevant the final couple of weeks of the season. Remains to be seen. Big game against Dallas. I'm sure it's going to be a sellout crowd. They're going to remove the tarp from the upper decks. And I'm sure whatever Jaguar fans that are in the Jacksonville area are going to flock that stadium to see the Cowboys. As we all know, they only come in once every eight years. Besides that, Philadelphia, Chicago. Am I going to get crazy about that? Absolutely not. As the Eagles are pretty much set to have the one seed in the NFC and have the playoffs go through Philadelphia. Atlanta, New Orleans. That's a game where a lot of people aren't going to go crazy about, but New Orleans thinks that they may have a shot here to be a part of the division. Same for Atlanta, for that matter. But remember, Atlanta's going with Desmond Ritter as quarterback, not Marcus Mariota. So you would think the Falcons are going to take a step back and the Saints, who have been awful, but they're going to think that they're still a part of this NFC South race because of what Tampa's done recently and then obviously Carolina, who's hosting Pittsburgh, and that's a winnable game for them as they have a matchup set for Tampa in a couple of weeks, and that's going to be huge when it comes to the NFC South. And as we know, Tampa, they have been just floundering here. And as we move toward the 4 o'clock window, because I'm not going to get crazy about Kansas City at Houston at 1, Detroit going to the Jets. Yes, it's a big game because Detroit, they look like they could be on the fringe of making it into the NFC playoff picture, but they are a game under 500. They're going to need to win this game to obviously stay alive. And the Jets, as we all know, that ship is starting to sink a little bit. And with Mike White at quarterback, and currently Zach Wilson now moved up to number two on the depth chart. So we'll see how that plays out over the course of the last few weeks. But as we know, the Jets are still trying to stay alive in the AFC playoff picture. But as we get to the 4 o'clock window, you have the two games that you can look at that aren't really sexy, but still have huge playoff implications. The first one being Tennessee at the Chargers. Tennessee, I already told you what their story is. All they have to do is just continue to win, and they're going to win the division. But we all know, from one week to the next, you not know what you're going to get from the Titans, Mike Vrabel and company. 
and the Chargers, them winning a big game on Sunday night against the Dolphins. Now let's see what they're going to do at home. This will be the game that Tennessee goes in there and they win 31-13. And with the Chargers, again, you cannot predict what they're going to do from one week to the next. I would think the Chargers, knowing that they had that win against the Dolphins, and that's going to mean and bode well for them as far as tiebreaker down the stretch considering the way the Dolphins' schedule is going to break. And then the Chargers, again, it's all in front of them. With the quarterback, the coach, Brandon Staley, we all know he could be a riverboat gambler when it comes to fourth downs and taking chances and shots down the field. So it's all right in front of them. The Titans, they can avoid embarrassment by just winning this game no matter what Jacksonville does. But as we all know, if they do lose this game, and let's say the Jaguars do beat the Cowboys on Sunday, then they're just going to be a game back with already a win under their belt against Tennessee, and we could start to see an implosion there in Nashville when it comes to the Titans. And Dallas still has to go to Tennessee to play against them, so who knows how this is going to shake down. The other 425 game is Cincinnati at Tampa. Beginning of the season, you looked at this game as a possible, even, dare I say, Super Bowl matchup. But with the Buccaneers pretty much hanging by their fingernails and the Bengals riding high, and with the Ravens playing on Saturday, they'll already know what their fate is going to be coming into that game down in Tampa on Sunday. So if the Ravens do lose, the Bengals could take a, not going to say a stranglehold, but they'll be in control of the AFC North. And obviously, if the Ravens do win against the Browns, and it's not out of the realm of possibility, we all know about division road games, and even just division games in general, but with Baltimore not having Lamar Jackson, and maybe in all likelihood not having Tyler Huntley, you're going to have a scenario where Anthony Brown's going to try to get the 10th win for the Ravens on the season against a Brown team that we all understand has been hurting and has been underachieving all year despite not having their quarterback from the start of the season. But Deshaun Watson's going to have his first home game. I'm sure the crowd's going to be revved up. They've been waiting to see what Deshaun Watson's going to do. And he's been mediocre at best here in his first two games back in the league. But, again, home crowd. I'm sure he's going to get a lot of support. And I would think that the Browns are going to look at this game, not necessarily like a Super Bowl, but they're going to do whatever it takes to try to upset the apple cart for the Ravens. Of course, the former Cleveland Browns going back two and a half decades ago, but I would think it's not going to be an easy game for the Ravens, so the Bengals could go into that game knowing that they may be able to take over first place depending on the outcome of what happens out in Cleveland. Then you have New England and the Las Vegas Raiders. I have to mention New England because of their win on Monday night against Arizona. Tough break as Kyler Murray tore his ACL. Who knows what's going to happen as far as his recovery goes. You know he's not going to start the season. It's all unlikely that he would to be recovered and ready by the start of training camp and by the start of next season. But as we know, the Patriots right now currently have the seventh seed in the AFC. And I'm going to say this right off the bat, and I got some flack on this regarding my TikTok account. I do not repeat, underline, do not want to see the Patriots in the postseason. I do not want to see another 47-10 to 10 embarrassment like we saw there this past January up at Orchard Park where the Bills scored touchdown drive after touchdown drive after touchdown drive. And think about this. They may end up playing the Bills or the Chiefs or maybe even the Bengals, for that matter, in a 2-7 matchup to where they're going to go on the road and have another scenario where they could get whacked before the game even starts. 
So put another seven seed in there. And I understand they weren't the seven seed last year. They were the six seed. Pittsburgh was the seven seed. And we know that they lost to Kansas City in that wild card round. But I do not want to see the Patriots there. There's nothing sexy about the team. I understand it's Belichick. I understand that a lot of people are going to gravitate to the New England angle of Belichick being there in the postseason, etc. But not with Mac Jones, no offense. And that defense is good, not great. Let's not overhype it or overrate it. I do not want to see the Patriots anywhere near the playoffs. So I just want to put that out there. And then your Monday night game, think about this. If I would have told you back in August that on December 19th, Monday night, Joe Buck, Troy Aikman, ESPN, that the Rams at Green Bay was going to be a dud of a game, you would have asked me, Jay Reels, what are you smoking? But no, that is the case. The, what, 3-10 and 10 Rams are going into the 5-8 and eight Green Bay Packers. And I don't want to hear that the Packers still have a slim chance. They are mathematically still alive, which they are. I'll give them that. But there is no way that the Packers are going to sniff anything close to a playoff position or get close to the seventh seed or the bottom of the NFC playoff picture, no matter how much you want to slice it and dice it. So now you have a scenario where the week is set up and with a couple of transactions that took place in the NFL, nothing major when you think about it, but this is what you have here. First off, the Buffalo Bills bring back Cole Beasley. I guess whatever issues they ironed out in the past, we all know that he was unvaccinated and it was a scenario where he was released from the team and tried to latch on to another team. I forgot where off the top of my head, but they bring him back into the fold for reinforcements. I think it's a good move. He knows the system. He knows the quarterback, the team, etc. And obviously, as we're now deep into an NFL season and out of all the COVID restrictions, it's safe to say that Beasley, I would think, no matter what type of shape he's in, I'm sure he's in very good shape, but is he in football and game shape? That certainly remains to be seen. But that was a big pickup for them, knowing that they already have Stephon Diggs, Gabriel Davis, even Dawson Knox, and even back then, a few weeks ago, when I talked about Ola Beckham Jr., I didn't think that he needed to go there, and obviously that's moot. You're not going to see him until next year. That's OBJ for that matter. But with Beasley, he's a guy that I would think would be a big contributor, third down, slot guy, so I'm sure that may pay dividends. Maybe not necessarily Saturday night against the Dolphins, or maybe even the following game after that, but the final two games, they have a big game on a Monday night in Cincinnati, which will be huge, and the whole NFL world will be watching. So we'll see how Beasley does there. And then the Cowboys signed T.Y. Hilton, the old Colt wide receiver. Brought him in. Let's see what he's going to do. We know Hilton's always been a deep threat, going back to his days where Andrew Luck was the quarterback of the Colts. And Hilton, small, fast, shifty receiver. I'm sure they'll try to deploy him as... A slot guy, I don't think he'll probably play outside. Who knows what Mike McCarthy and company are going to do. Kellen Moore, etc., the offensive coordinator, how they will deploy Hilton in their offense. But he is another weapon. He's a guy that can stretch the field. And you would think that that's going to be a boon for a Cowboy team that's trying to not only just win a round, but go as deep as possible. Because with Mike McCarthy, the coach, It's pretty much going to be Super Bowl a bust on whether or not he comes back, but we all know Jerry Jones. If it happens to be a meltdown of epic proportions or a game that we saw last year against the San Francisco 49ers in the wild card round where you have 14 penalties and just sloppy, undisciplined play, chances are McCarthy may be out, but they've had a very good season to date, 10-3, and as we talked about, going to Jacksonville, 
and playing out the rest of the string to see where they land. Chances are not at the top of the NFC East. They'll probably be a fifth seed going to the fourth seed, which would be the NFC South. Is that Tampa? Is that Carolina? Obviously, we'll see how that unfolds. But that's pretty much your NFL here. Going into a week 15, everything mapped out. Getting ready for this final stretch. And then one last thing, Debo Samuel, who a lot of people feared that the injuries on Sunday against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were season-ending, where he had an issue with his knee and his ankle. Well, as it is, he could possibly be back by the end of the regular season. He had suffered an ankle sprain as well as an MCL sprain on his knee. So let's see how he recovers. Obviously, he's a big cog in that 49er offense. And as we all know, it has stars abound with George Kittle. Obviously, with Christian McCaffrey, who they brought in midseason. And Brandon Ayuk, who is a very underrated wide receiver. Of course, Debo Samuel is your Swiss Army knife of that offense. And he's a key component and an engine as far as the Niners go. So we'll have to keep an eye on his recovery down the stretch to see where he ends up whether or not we see him toward the end of the regular season or they're going to gear him up for the playoffs come January. That's your NFL take as we get through this final four-week stretch. Quickly, I'm going to turn to college football. No, not to talk about the Bulls, which I believe start today. As I mentioned on Monday, I'm not going to get into any bowl talk unless it's the final four later on in the month. But as we know, if something wild and crazy does happen with some of these bowl games, whether it's high scoring or crazy play or a last-second Hail Mary, something along those lines. I'll get into it, but I bring up college football for one reason, and that's the former Mississippi State coach, Mike Leach, who Monday died of heart failure. I know I didn't mention this on the podcast Monday. Over the weekend, he did suffer a massive heart attack. He wasn't in intensive care, and then he succumbed to heart disease on Monday. Just a terrible story. Mike Leach, a guy who a lot of people... There was a groundswell for tributes, social media, and the like, where a lot of people had an outpouring of how Leach was, just a great guy, a team guy. Uh, Even Nick Saban come out and said great things about Mike Leach. And just to think, 61 years of age, way too young for him to just not only succumb to have a heart attack, but then, of course, perish from this just unfortunate and terrible incident. Thoughts, prayers, condolences go out to the Leach family. Obviously, his friends, the whole college football community, coaches, etc. Just a terrible story. And as I like to say time after time, people, you want to stay in the present, but also you want to take care of yourself. Now, let me turn my attention as I put on my high tops. I'll get to the baseball with Carlos Correa. I want to get into NBA, NHL. Those are two storylines that I want to dive into. With the NBA... You had Lakers-Celtics there on Tuesday night, and we understand Lakers-Celtics maybe doesn't ring the way it once did. Of course, not going back to the 60s and the way they just toughed it out and had slugfest after slugfest with all those NBA Finals. And not to give a history lesson of Lakers-Celtics, but anytime those two teams play one another, even the casual sports fan may watch for a few minutes just to see how it's going to play out. And this one, on a Tuesday, it's certainly it's not a Sunday, as we know, back in the day, whether it's on ABC, and I would think that the next game that will be in Boston will be either a Saturday showcase or a Sunday afternoon game, and that just goes to show you how much, I don't even know when the next Lakers-Celtic game is, and I'm a Celtic fan. And I understand people can say, well, Jay Reels, oh, you're a terrible fan. 
unfortunately, I'm not going to look at the NBA season in full microscopic view to see who's going to play what, where. We all know that when the NBA season begins, you look at opening night as to who's going to play. You're going to look at Christmas Day. And then once you get into January after the college football season ends, that's where you get your Saturday showcase of games as to who's going to play in those highlight matchups throughout the course of January, February, into March, etc. So with me not really 100% being focused in on NBA mode, that will come as we get into January and certainly into February once the NBA season concludes. But with all that being said, you had a crazy game there on Tuesday night where the Celtics had lost to the Warriors on Saturday night and then to the Clippers there Monday night. So they had back-to-back games in LA. They got off to a great start. Actually had a 20-point lead, which fizzled and then imploded right in front of their eyes where the Lakers had a big stretch to where they concluded the third quarter and into the fourth quarter with an 18-0 run. And then as we get deeper into the fourth quarter, they had a 13-point lead with four minutes to go. And it was actually reminiscent of an old Celtic-Laker game, which I'll get to in a minute. But then the Celtics started to chip away, chip away, chip away. And with the Lakers up by two late in the game with Anthony Davis on the line, he missed two free throws to where Jason Tatum, with 17 seconds left, hits a fallaway jumper over LeBron, ties the game, and then LeBron, a little bit of a hero ball as he tries to drain a three at the buzzer, misses it, and then Tatum scores 12 points in the overtime. The Celtics escape with a big victory in LA, a win that they absolutely had to have considering that they had lost the previous two games, and Davis, who, like I mentioned, missed those two free throws, if we rewind back to Friday in Philadelphia, he missed a key free throw down the stretch, to which could have propelled them to win the game, but they ended up losing in overtime to the Sixers. So Davis, for whatever the reason, who's played brilliantly throughout the last three to four weeks, is not able to knock down a free throw in a key spot. So the Celtics prevail as they move on. Big win there, like I mentioned. And the game that I was referring to, I believe it was the 2002, the 02-03 season. This is the height of the Shaq and Kobe era, where the Celtics were down by 13, I believe in that same window, three and a half minutes to four minutes to go. And the Celtics came roaring back. This was under Antoine Walker, Paul Pierce, etc. And the Celtics had a comeback for the ages. And of course, not too many people remember, unless you're a diehard Celtic fan, even a Laker fan, or just an overall NBA fan. But I'll never forget how Antoine Walker put up a bad three-point shot, which banked off the glass as time expired and the Celtics won in LA. And of course, that was a Celtic team that were still trying to find their way. They made it to a conference final. I believe it was the 0203 season. It was after the year where they went to a conference final against the Nets. And it brought me back to that game. And then it brought me back to another game, going back to the 80s, if you remember, where I believe it was the 88-89 season, where Magic Johnson, in the old Boston Garden, threw up a desperation heave three, which was banked off the glass, almost similar to the Antoine Walker shot that I just mentioned, as the Lakers miraculously won a game in Boston as they went off into the night, ran off the court. And it was a regular season game, not a finals game. And that was one that sticks in the memory of buzzer beaters, improbable shots. And I understand the Celtic-Laker game the other night wasn't a buzzer beater, but it reminded me of a 13-point double-digit comeback in the closing minutes of the fourth quarter. And although they won in overtime, 
the game against the Celtics Lakers of many years ago, the Antoine Walker shot didn't go into overtime. So all these games were mismatched in my head, and I thought to just bring that to the table when it comes to Lakers-Celtics, and I guess I did go down memory road and have a little bit of a history lesson, but hey, what is there else to talk about in the NBA as of right this moment? Because as we look at the NBA, it's pretty much still the same. We're going to pretty much get the same type of scenarios when it comes to week in and week out. And of course, having this podcast twice a week, there's only but so much NBA and even NHL that I could delve into. But as we take a look at the NBA as of right this moment, the Bucks are just a game behind the Celtics in the East. They're both tied in the loss column. Celtics 22 and 7, Bucks 20 and 7. So that's one you got to keep an eye on. The Nets are starting to rev up here a little bit as they've performed very well here. Winners of eight of the last 10, four in a row. They're now 17 and 12 as they start to creep up in the standings when it comes to the Eastern Conference. The Sixers have also played well. Give it up to the Knicks as they start a back to back in Chicago. They won last night in overtime. I believe the game was in overtime as they won, yes, 128 120. And the Knicks have now won five in a row. So, hey, do we keep an eye out for them to see if they could get out of their early season malaise where the Heat are still middling? The Hawks have not played well, have not been consistent. Same for the Raptors. And the Raptors are a type of team where they're run of the mill, but we all know they're coached very well by Nick Nurse. That's what you have there in the East. Even the Pacers give them some credit. They've also played well. The other big story that's come out here over the last 24 hours is now you got to wonder with the Warriors as they're trying to get their season on track and now they're losers of two in a row. You had the incident the other night in Milwaukee where Draymond Green, a fan, had to get thrown out because he threatened Draymond Green and we all know that he's a lightning rod for this. We go back to the playoffs last year against Memphis and countless other episodes that have happened with the Warrior forward. So... With the Golden State team, going back to Steph Curry, he injured his shoulder in Indiana last night. He's set for an MRI today. Who knows what that's going to mean, how long he's going to be out, whether the separation is a lot more serious or severe than it could possibly be. And with the Warriors currently at 14-15, and and even with that big win against the Celtics, which you probably thought maybe they could turn the corner a little bit and get on track, uh uh-uh, not the case as they're in the Midwest right now, and they're going to come east over the weekend. I believe they play in Philadelphia tomorrow. They play the Knicks here on Tuesday. And let's see if Golden State, without their star player, at least for the immediate future, and who knows if it's going to be long-term, but that's a tough blow there for the Warriors as they try to get their footing here almost 30 games into their season. But out west, we talked about the Pelicans, how well they've played. The Grizzlies have won six in a row. So now we got to look at them. It's funny to look at the Western Conference, not seeing the usual mainstay characters, whether it's the Lakers, who are currently 11-16, and 16, or even the Suns, who have come back to the pack quite a bit, losers of five in a row. Even a team like the Denver Nuggets, you even want to throw in the Clippers, Golden State, who usually are at the top of the Western Conference holding that real estate. No. You have Pelicans, Grizzlies, Nuggets, those top three teams just separated by one game. And as we talked about in the last couple of weeks, the NBA, those top 11 seeds, really the top 10, but if you want to include the 11th, they were all separated by three and a half, four games. Now there's been a little bit of separation. It's actually expanded to five and a half. So again, long season, plenty of basketball to be played, but 
the shift in the Western Conference, at least for right now, showing that the young guns of the Pelicans, of the Grizzlies, and you want to throw in the Nuggets, they are the ones that are currently occupying those top spots while the elder statesmen, or the teams that we always see, they're close to or at the top, both LA teams, Golden State, Phoenix, they are hovering in the middle toward the bottom or even out of the Western Conference playoff mix. So we'll continue to keep our eyes on that. With the NHL, the big story here over the last few days has to go to a one Alexander Ovechkin. And for him to reach the plateau of 800 goals in the sport, and I get it, it's hockey, it's Canada sport, it's number four, and in some circles you could even argue whether or not it's the fourth most popular sport in North America behind, obviously, the NFL, baseball, and basketball. Not in that order, because you could even flip-flop basketball as being the second most popular sport in the country. But for Ovechkin to get to 800 goals, and we understand it's not sexy like home runs once were in Major League Baseball, although a lot of attention is still paid to the home run when we look at the Aaron Judge home run chase of this past year in the American League and what he did there, as we all know. But for Ovechkin, is a guy that, as we all know, from Russia... He's not an American-born player, or even Canadian for that matter. So if you're not a casual or diehard hockey fan, or even just a casual sports fan, that you may look at, all right, you got 800 goals, big whoop. But here's the reason why this milestone should be cherished, and even this player for that matter. And remember, I am not a Capital fan, and I'm not a big-time Ovechkin fan. I admire his style of play. The guy has been pretty much circa 1984 Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Terminator. And how he's played. Big man, plays physical. Yes, understood, not physical in the sense of 80s, 90s hockey where he was a Cam Neely, Rick Tockett type. Obviously, he's not that type of player. But we all know he throws his body around, 37 years of age, all the mileage that he's compiled here over the course of his 18-year career. And he's reached a milestone that only two players in the history of sport have ever attained. And they both have nicknames, and rightfully so. Mr. Hockey, Gordie Howe, who is just one goal ahead of him all time. And the great one, Wayne Gretzky, who arguably is the greatest athlete in the history of any sport. And I say arguably, I get it, you're going to look at Muhammad Ali, you're going to look at Michael Jordan, Babe Ruth, etc. But guess what? He is in that conversation. And I don't care. You can at me all you want. What? You're crazy, Jay Reels? Wayne Gretzky, please. He's not even the pimple on Bill Russell's fanny or Michael Jordan. Or... I'm not saying he's better. But Gretzky, if you're looking at the Mount Rushmore sports, especially when it comes to team sports, I understand Tiger Woods, Jack Nicklaus, Muhammad Ali, understood. Oh, different set of circumstances. But when you're talking about team sports, Gretzky could be on that Mount Rushmore. And knowing that Ovechkin is now 94 goals away, which is still about, I mean, at this pace, who knows? He could break it by the end of next season. But at 37 years of age, to get to this level, to play on this level, and for him to do it in Chicago, in original six city, and to do it in a hat-trick fashion where the third goal, as you all know, a hat-trick is three goals in a hockey game. For him to do that, in that building, in that city, 
And for him to get his 800th goal, all with one team, I might add. The only player in the history of sport to do so. Remember, Gretzky's been on a million teams. Go through all the great goal scorers. Mario Lemieux, we understand one team, but he, he doesn't even have 700 goals in his career. I believe he's at somewhere in the 600s. 800 goals. This guy should be not only cherished, but should be appreciated. And I'm sure over the course of the next couple of days, we're going to have the ticker at the bottom where you're going to see him tie or surpass Gordy Howe, and he's going to have Wayne Gretzky as the last guy standing. And that record, I would think, once he gets there, and I'm sure he's going to get to it, I don't think anybody, as long as I'm going to be alive, is going to come anywhere near that record. And this is why we watch sports, to see players like that reach, achieve, and surpass goals like this. And if you can't look at this guy for what he is and for what he's meant to the sport of hockey, and when he's gone, that's it. Then we're going to look at the young guns of the sport right now. The Connor McDavid's. The Nathan McKinnon's. All these young players that are coming into the sport or have been in the sport have made their imprint on the sport. Jack Hughes, another one in New Jersey. Maybe even, you want to say to a certain extent, Jack Eichel. I understand he's been out with injuries, whatever, but... These guys are going to be the next it guys to see if they can even get to 500 goals, let alone 800. And this guy's already at 800. All I'm going to say is, people, for the sports fan out there, just look at what this guy's done, look what he's about to do, and he's going to continue to embark and assault the record books as long as he's healthy. And the guy's been healthy. He's indestructible. And all I can say is kudos to you, my guy, Ovi, grade 8, Alex Ovechkin, Alexander Ovechkin, whatever you call him. The guy is just not only an all-time great, but he's about to become an immortal player. Not saying he is. And remember, it's all about goal scoring. But when you're up in that echelon and in that rarefied air, in a sport that only currently at this very moment has two people ahead of you, And the name of the game is putting the puck in the net. What more can I say about a guy who's at this achievement that already hasn't been said? And as we take a look at what's happening on the ice, just like I mentioned with the NBA, of course there's not a lot that you're going to go crazy about or bank on or what have you. Yes, we could talk about certain teams and what they've done here over the course of the last few days or week or so. Everything is pretty much still intact. I know the Bruins obviously have played well, as we've seen. The Leafs have been scorching here. They've won nine of the last ten. Actually, they're unbeaten in the last ten. Nine, oh and one. As the Leafs try to inch closer to the Bruins. Looking throughout the sport, everything's pretty much status quo. Not much to really dive into. Not much really to focus on, zero in on when it comes to what's happening on the ice. You haven't had a team that's been streaking. The other day I talked about Chris Letang coming back. Good for him as the Penguins who have played very well here. Winners of six in a row as they try to get themselves in good position there in the Metropolitan Division. But besides that, not much else to discuss. Ovechkin's been a story in the NHL, obviously and understandably so. And of course, I'll keep abreast of what's happening in the NHL as we continue to move on throughout the month and obviously into the new year.
All right, let me turn my attention to baseball as we had a huge signing there yesterday or late last Tuesday, this past Tuesday night, where Carlos Correa, who the former Houston Astro and Minnesota Twin of last year, signs a 13-year, $350 million deal. And yes, Scott Boris right in the middle of it. As we all know, Boris always works his magic with these players, getting these contracts. And if you're a Giant fan... I wonder how you feel. I'm sure you're looking at the organization thinking that they tried for Aaron Judge and was unsuccessful. Interesting, we don't even know how much money was offered there. I think it was in the vicinity of 10 years, $350 million, but it was unlike what we heard from the Padres as far as 10 years and $400 million. But the Giants had to do something here knowing that they lost out on Judge. They weren't able to bring him back to the Bay Area. And if this was the next best thing, to me, it's not good enough. I understand they had to do something. I understand that they had to make a splash of some sort, considering what the Padres have done here this offseason, and then what they tried to do, not only originally trying to bring in Trey Turner, the aforementioned judge, and then signing Xander Bogarts. And then we know the Dodgers are the Dodgers, although they've been very quiet, other than signing... Clayton Kershaw for one more year and bringing in a couple of relievers that went under the radar. One from the Rays, that Fryerhausen, I can't even pronounce his name. But for the Giants, knowing that they absolutely had to do something. And if this was the only guy that they could do and not try to be creative in the trade front to maybe bring in a guy or not to say that they had to look for a savior or someone that was going to be box office. We know Correa is not that guy. But knowing that you have this commitment to this player at 28 years of age, who I believe will be 29, I guess, yeah, next September. So to have this contract go to 41 years old and for him to play shortstop, who already has a bad back, and when we look at his baseball card, the back of it, that is, we know that he is a clutch player, he's been a money player, a good postseason player. But unfortunately, he is not a guy that is going to be a perennial MVP caliber type player. Does he have MVP talent? 100%. No ifs, ands, buts about it. He does have all the tools, and he is capable of being that type of player. But again, back of the baseball card, nothing sexy when it comes to his numbers. It's not as if he's a 30 and 100 RBI guy. It's not as if he's a consistent 300 hitter. It's not as if he's a above average. I'll even go as far as saying that. Offensive player. Because when you look at his numbers, and I'll pull them up here in a moment, his numbers, when we look at this contract, and we can say this for a lot of people too, so I don't want it to be a thing where I'm just picking on Correa. We can look at so many other players. Trey Turner getting the money that he did and what I said about that. Even Xander Bogarts to that degree. But at least Bogarts, he's had 30 home run years. He's had he's batted 315 or even, I believe, 331 year, somewhere in that vicinity. So that's not to say that it's consistent. But at least he's done it. Whereas Correa, again, when we look at his numbers, and I understand you may have to throw the first couple of years aside, but his career totals, average, baseball season, 28 homers, 101 RBIs, and I don't even know where they got that. I guess they project that over 162 games. But think about this. He's never hit 30 home runs. The most he's hit in one year is 26. He's hit 90 RBIs twice, two years ago, 92, and then in 2016, 96. 
He's been an all-star twice. He's been a guy that obviously displayed power, but he's not a runner in scoring position when he steps to the plate every time up. And I understand you can say that for a lot of players, but again, Judge, when you think of guys that right away when he's in the batter's box, he could sneeze and hit a home run. Obviously, Correa is not that guy. And the thing is, he is a very good and clutch player that you definitely want to have on your team. So as much as it may look like I'm disparaging him, I'm just going based on his, like I said, his stats throughout the course of his career and what we've been able to see Correa do even on championship-level teams where he's had guys in his lineup like Altuve, Bregman, Gurriel, Alvarez. Over the last five, six years before he left to go to Minnesota, now as he transitions and goes to San Francisco, he's supposed to be the guy in that lineup where you have Mike Yastrzemski, an aging Brandon Crawford, an aging Brandon Belt, who I believe he's probably even gone by now, but... You have guys like that where it's going to be him being the focal point of that lineup and pitchers are going to pitch around him. Pitchers may go after him too. Evan Longoria is another guy off the top of my head. In this lineup, he's not going to have that same type of, I don't want to go as far as saying prowess, but when you're on a team that has a very good lineup, you're just another spoke in the wheel. Where here in San Francisco, he's expected to be the man. And as we know, based on everything that we've just talked about and that contract, and we understand we can say that for a lot of players in Major League Baseball, he is not worth that money. But God bless him. That's just how the way the system is, and away we go. As far as other trade signings, things of that nature, the one I want to bring up is the Braves trading for Sean Murphy, the ace catcher, in a very... Wise trade, and as I talked about on Monday's podcast, as far as the Mets and how they operate and how they handle their business, and hoping that the Mets slowly but surely turn to that as opposed to just spending like drunken sailors. Now, they traded William Contreras, their catcher, to Milwaukee. It was a three team deal Oakland, Atlanta, Milwaukee, where you had all these moving parts and Murphy coming from Oakland to Atlanta. And he's a guy that I'm sure all the Sabermetric nerds love, especially when it comes to his defensive metrics. A guy that throws out base runners, frames pitches, etc. He also does have some pop, although Contreras is a better offensive player. But this is a guy that's going to come to this team, add another element, especially with the game expanding next year where the stolen base may come back into play. And now the Braves, who for all... Of their brilliance and for all their scouting, drafting, knowing what to do, sign their long-term contracts to their young players like they have done here in recent vintage, whether it's the Spencer Striders of the world, even the Michael Harris Juniors of the world, and now you bring in a guy like Murphy who still has three more years left before he becomes a free agent, and this is how you build a team. And I would only hope that Steve Cohen, Billy Epler, and company are keeping tabs and taking notice of what's going on there. James McCann, this guy is not. And I'm not trying to make out Sean Murphy to be Johnny Bench. So let's go there. But Murphy, on a team like the Braves, is just going to blend in. He's going to be a guy that, come August, if he's healthy, come July, August, when you look at his numbers, that he's batting 280, and he has 16 home runs, 
and 50-some-odd RBIs, and he throws out 40% of stolen base attempts and so on and so forth, you're going to say, wow, what a great move that was. And that's the difference between an organization like the Braves and the Mets. And we understand it's New York. It's Gotham. you got to compete with the Yankees. And for the longest time, the Mets fans have been wondering whether or not are we going to get a guy that's going to come in here and spend money. Now that we have that, it doesn't mean that we have to be irresponsible. So I don't want to go down the Met road. It's about the Braves and how they operate and what they do. And this trade is indicative of that. And again, I'm not trying to make Murphy out to be the second coming of Yogi Berra. But you got to give it up as them making another move that flies under the radar that nobody really cares about. But then as you get in the middle of the season and a lineup with Acuna and Olsen and... Well, we don't know about Swanson. He's the one last shortstop that's left out there on the free agent market. And Albies, who will be 100% healthy. So that lineup and Austin Riley, obviously I'm not in baseball mode, but you know what I'm saying. You bring in a guy like Murphy, he just fits right in. And the next thing you know, the guy will end up probably being an all-star come mid-July. Then you had Chris Bassett sign with the... Blue Jays, three years, $63 million. Good deal for them. Bassett, as we all know, very good pitcher. I know there were some circles that maybe wanted to have him come back to New York to be just some more strength to that starting rotation. But bringing in Kodai Senga, the Japanese kid, there was no way that was going to happen, especially with Verland in the mix. So Bassett goes to Toronto, which that's a big move. Toronto solidifies their pitching even more. Kudos to them. They also got Kevin Kiermeyer, which I didn't discuss last week, to play the outfield with now Teoscar Hernandez in Seattle. And then you're probably wondering, Met fans, Adam Adovino, he's a guy that's out there on the free agent market. We know the type of year he had. I don't know what he's asking for or what he's commanding, but he's a guy that is out there, and I'm sure a team would pick him up and would go crazy just being able to plug him in as an eighth inning guy or, dare I even say, as a closer. But the one thing is is that he's coming off of a great year. And we all know relievers, they could be one year bad, one year good. And I'm wondering if the Mets, part of their philosophy is is that maybe if we bring Adovino back, he's going to be trending south. Again, I'm not part of these discussions, as you know, but maybe that's the reason why they have not pursued Adovino to bring him back, let's say, on a two-year deal, which probably would be worth somewhere in the vicinity of 25 to $30 million. And as we all know with the Mets, as I said a second ago, money's no object. But we'll see what happens with Adovino here as we get deeper into this offseason. And then finally, we have a World Cup final set where Argentina is going to go up against France. France, as we all know, is going for back-to-back here in this setting. And France, what they did yesterday to Morocco, and give it up, Morocco, they were valiant. They weren't embarrassed. They belonged on the stage. It's not as if they got blown out 5-1 to one or, and to think, five minutes into the game, France scored a goal and you would think, oh, here's the beginning of the end for Morocco, but they had their chances. They were able to stem that early tie by France. They had a couple of big chances there at the end of the first half and even it well into the second half where 10 minutes they spent a lot of time in France's zone, but they were unable to get that equalizer, which probably would have changed the complexion of the game, but... Be that as it may, Morocco was unable to get the equalizer. And then in the 79th minute, France scores again. And at that point, you could pretty much call that a wrap as France will now be a part of this final for the second time here 
in the last four years. And with Argentina beating Croatia pretty much in easy fashion, getting a couple of goals in the between the 30th and 40th minute of that match. And now we have the two heavyweights where we have the aging superstar and a one Lionel Messi going up against the young Mbappe of France. I'm going to root for Argentina. To me, when we look at the great players in the history of sport, and even though I don't follow soccer, and I am not fully versed by any stretch, hand raised high in the air, but I do know who the stars of the game are. I know who Ronaldo is. I know who Neymar is. I know who Mbappe is. And obviously, I know who Lionel Messi is. And Messi, as we all know, has had a phenomenal career, an all-time career, arguably one of the greats of the game. And I couldn't even tell you if he belongs on that Mount Rushmore of soccer players. We all know Pele's up there, but after that, your guess is as good as mine. Do you throw David Beckham in there? I'm sure some circles won't say that. But I would think for Lionel Messi, this is going to be a rallying cry for not only the team, but I'm sure the whole country. Because they know that if they are the last team standing, if they hoist that trophy over their heads, and especially if Messi gets a goal in this game, you could probably cement them as an immortal player. I don't know. I'm sure there's a soccer fan out there that would either debate that or agree with me on that. But I would think this would be the ultimate. This would be almost John Elway-like to play all those years in the NFL and then to finally get that first Super Bowl under his belt after losing three and then for him to get that second one before riding off into the sunset and now he's on this stage so I would think for everything that's happened throughout his whole career and knowing that he has an opportunity for him his legacy the country etc that they're 90 minutes away from achieving that This is why I'm picking Argentina. This is not to knock France. This is not to knock what they've done. Obviously, they are a heavyweight in their own right. And they belong to be here. But I would think Argentina, at the end of the day, is going to win. But, and there's a huge but. The sad part is, is that if it comes down to penalty kicks, and you know how much I hate that, it doesn't necessarily mean that the better team will win if it's based on that. I wish that they could leave the final game for it to just be played sudden death and substitute and go along as you please. I get it. The soccer fan's going to say, Jay Reels, you're off your rocker. You don't know what you're talking about. Stay in your other sports lane. No, we're talking about competition. And we're talking about how a championship game should not come down to penalty kicks. And I get it. They've played for almost a month to this point and they are exhausted mentally, physically, maybe even spiritually for that matter. And for them to play well into the night until somebody, God forbid, collapses on the turf, it's not about that. But it's about that team making the mistake or making a substitution in the middle of a play where you would allow it in this sense, or maybe if you, even if you don't allow it, kind of like hockey when they change shifts. Why can't we do that here? And knowing that it should come down to a classic final where if that one mistake if that one error, if that one bounce of the ball goes that team's way, it will be remembered forever. Is it going to be remembered forever because it came down the penalty kicks? No. 
And let's just say if Argentina dominates the game in their zone, and let's say they're winning one nothing, and they've dominated, they've had chance after chance after chance, and France, they've been thwarted until the game goes into overtime. And when it gets into overtime, they tie the game. And then it goes to penalty kicks, and then France wins. You're going to look at it and say, wait a minute. Argentina was the better team. And it came down to penalty kicks? And how I look at it, if it's 0-0 going into overtime, it should just be sudden death in those 30 minutes. And then it gets to penalty kicks, I get it. But let it be sudden death. As we saw, what was it, Croatia and Brazil, where Brazil got the goal and then Croatia? No, that's it. Over, done with. But again, I'm not the soccer aficionado. I know people are going to swat it down and say, J-Reels, you need to take a backseat on this. But I know friends who are soccer fans forever. My guy, John Irving. And even he has said that, especially in a World Cup final, it shouldn't come down to penalty kicks. And pretty much for everything I just mentioned. You want a classic game? You want a classic outcome? Yeah, just have him play, substitute, until somebody scores. That's it. That's what makes it more thrilling. That's what makes it more edge of your seat. That's what makes it more compelling, riveting, all that. You're not going to get to 120 minutes and then penalty kicks like, all right, who's going to win this? It's, it's a joke. But let's see how it shakes down. I'm going to root for Argentina. And we'll discuss this, of course, come Monday on the podcast. That'll do it. Another one in the books. As always, people, thank you so much for stopping by. Your contribution, your participation is not taken for granted. So if you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, review this podcast on wherever you get your podcast. Throw me a few stars, write a review. I greatly appreciate it. Come on, people. j Real's podcast. I talk about all these sports in one hour. What other podcast does that out there? So share with your friends, social media, the early Christmas gift to the sports fan in your life if you could do so. One more time, I would greatly appreciate it. If you want to contact me on social media by email, you could do so at the following on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, the J Reels Podcast, Twitter, J Reels One Just a Number, the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. If you want to hit me up with a question, comment, criticism, praise, or suggestion, you could do so. I'll be more than happy to follow up. And then finally, if you want to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. P is in Paul, A T is in Tom, R E O N is in Nancy. Whatever you want to put forth is going 100% to the production, the upkeep of the website, the equipment to make this experience into the microphone, to your earbuds or speakers that much more enjoyable, excitable, etc. Because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to talk about, people. It's in the blood, it's in the DNA, as I like to say, and I'm not going anywhere as I'm here to stay. Rhyming skills aside, because If you cannot hear the passion, fire, fury, energy of me breaking down and discussing my thoughts, opinions, analysis, critiques, praises on anything and everything that has to do with what goes on in the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it, from my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South East, the South Center, the South Pacific, and all points beyond. Peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the foot, baby. <laughs>